Welcome to Banyan Books, Branches of Wisdom. Celebrating the joy of bright ideas and heartful lifelong learning. Branches of Wisdom is a series of intimate conversations with the world's most influential authors and visionaries. We explore spirituality and the human mind, ecology and culture. Most episodes are recorded with a live audience. You can join our live events and submit questions to your favorite guests. Check out our upcoming schedule at banyan.com. Since 1970, Banyan Books has been a rich oasis at the crossroads of wisdom and philosophy, offering resources for humanity's evolving paths. We're a locally owned, independent bookstore in the heart of Vancouver's Kitsilano neighborhood. Visit us in person or shop online at banyan.com. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews for the podcast. And now, enjoy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Banyan Books podcast. I'm your host, Ross McKeechee. Today, Banyan Books is in conversation with Sister Joan Chittister. Sister Joan Chittister is one of the most articulate and influential spiritual leaders of our time. For 50 years, she has passionately advocated on behalf of peace, human rights, women's issues, and church renewal. The award-winning author of over 60 books, she's an international lecturer who has appeared with the Dalai Lama, on Now with Bill Moyers, and on Super Soul Sunday with Oprah Winfrey. She received her doctorate from Penn State University in speech communications theory, and in 1996 was an elected fellow at St. Edmunds College at Cambridge University. A member of the Benedictine Sisters of Erie, Pennsylvania, Sister Joan served as president of the Leadership Conference of Women Religious and as prioress of the Benedictine Sisters of Erie for 12 years. She is executive director of Bennett Vision, a resource and research center for contemporary spirituality and the founder and animator of Monasteries of the Heart an online community sharing Benedictine spirituality with contemporary seekers. Our honored guest is a founding member of the Global Peace Initiative of Women, a partner organization of the UN where she works to develop a worldwide network of women peace builders. Today, Sister Joan is joining Banyan Books in conversation about her latest book, The Monastic Heart, 50 Practices for a Contemplative and Fulfilling Life. In this book, the activist, nun, and esteemed spiritual voice sounds the call to create a monastery within ourselves, to cultivate wisdom and resilience, to inspire renewal, restoration, and justice right where we are. To learn more about our guests and her work, please visit her website, Joan Chittister, dot org sister joan thank you so much for being with us today it's it's just a great opportunity now i just want to let our audience know that sister joan has been having a few issues with her uh internet connection as you can see at the but moment it's just like you, 
So we're just going to have to bear with that. And Sister Joan, I'll, I'll let you know if, every time it, if it freezes and we'll just pause and, and regroup from there. So you open this, or sorry, in, in the acknowledgements at the back of the book, you tell the story of the inception of this book back in 1996. Can you tell us a little bit more about how the book came to be? I really write that down, Josh. I, I wasn't even aware of that. It's, a, it's kind of a family story uh, between and among us. I was out, uh, I was having lunch with a friend in um, not 10 years ago, more than that. And um, she, she's a, a published poet and the, the communicator type too. So we're talking, like I'm sure you all do, about what, what will be the next project. And she says to me, um, no, it wasn't 10 years ago, it was 25 years ago. She says to me, you know what you ought to be doing, Joni? You, you should be writing uh, a book that explains all the words we use as Benedictines, because I think people would understand Benedictinism better. They, they don't know what this language is about. I said, you want me, you, you're telling me you want me to write a Benedictine glossary? Oh, come on. I, I, I'm griffing on there. She said, I said, what good would that do? She said, John, you don't understand. We talk among ourselves. I mean, we've got a patois. And then they're too polite to ask, but they don't really realize that we're talking about the, the way Benedictines look at the world. All right. So come on, let's just write some, like, let, let's, let's start it right now. So she takes out a piece of paper. We start writing words, uh, bells, statio, antiphon, processions, seeking God. We get down to about 25. She said, now, I think it'd be good if you did 25 more. I said, yeah, right. So we finish lunch and we leave, and I'm so glad to see you disappear over the horizon. That's that. I don't have to worry about that again. So uh, fast forward 25 years. I'm, uh, last year, I'm out for lunch. Same person, same friend. One, uh, uh, this woman, this, this nun, uh, she, she, she's like frozen, right? She's really frozen. She said, you know that book? When are you going to write that book we talked about? I knew. I just knew. I said, do you mean that book that we talked about 25 years? Yeah, she said. It's been 25 years. It'd be the perfect time to write it. I said, Mary Lou, I, come on. We can do 25 more words. So I thought to myself, I'm not going to get her off my back. I mean, do something with this. So I go away writing. And you know the, the more I, I, I um, the, the more I worked on those words, Ross, the more I began to understand what she was talking about. There is a language that we use. After 1500 years of a tradition, you don't start changing the names of things. We have refectories. You know, we have oratories. We talk about Fuga Mundi. We, we, and it goes back to the sixth century. But for us, it's yesterday and tomorrow. I began to realize that in this book is the embrace of a culture, of a way of seeing the world, of a way of, of, of directing your own life through it. And it, the book has become very, very precious to me as a result. It's a beautiful book. 
it's a really beautiful book and and i've got a lot out of it and just to let everybody know it's the kind of book you keep on the shelf and you can refer to by opening to any chapter anytime and, and contemplating that chapter one of the first chapters chapter two you talk about stasio i love this principle and it was a real reminder to me i never had heard that term but it was a reminder to me to keep that kind of a practice in my life. Can you tell us a bit about Stasio? I certainly can, because it was the very first thing I tripped over in the novitiate. I had just entered, and the novice mistress, of course, was beginning the Benedictine glossary with us then, too. So she, she was talking about uh, prayer times, and she said, um, uh, uh, evening prayer is at 5 o'clock, uh, be there at five to five. Part, well, could you repeat that? Evening prayers at five o'clock and you're to be there at five to five. I'm 16 years old. I said, sister, I don't get it. Uh, what, what, what are you telling us to do? Do we go at, is prayer at five or is it at five to five? She said, it's at five and you're to be there at five to five. So I, I, I knew that more questions were not going to be welcomed that day. So uh, I worked on it. And I worked on it, and I worked on it. And it may, I'm not sure how many years it took, maybe eight, maybe 10. And suddenly I got it. I, I, after, after working on, on this devotion to this strange word, I began to understand that if you and I look at that word together out of an American or Canadian culture, we see the word station. And, and that's what they want. Aren't they novice? That's what we all do. We go, whatever the prayer time is, the community goes to chapel five minutes earlier. Now, why? Well, as an American, I tell you, I can tell you easily, we run down here from thing to thing. We, we, we never, we're always sliding into home. We're always just barely there and hardly able to breathe. Uh, running so hard and so fast and saying to I got to remember, I have soon as I get back. Oh yeah, when I leave here, what I can do is I'll just run down the hall and use that phone. Not in Stazio, you don't. You go into chapel, you sit down, you take a deep breath, you close your eyes, you stop what you were just doing but still thinking about and you begin to put your concentration on what you'll do next. It is an absolutely marvelous exercise for the soul. It brings you into consciousness. I'm here now with Ross. I'm not with my sisters downstairs. I'm not waiting for the next thing on, on this afternoon's list. I can concentrate on this. He and I can have a, a good personal conversation and I won't be distracted and he won't be checking his watch like this, like this, every five minutes. He won't have one foot out the door. He's in Stazio where concentration tames the domestic soul to be where it is instead of where it isn't. And as you do that over and over again, if you came in from work at night and instead of throwing your coat 
onto the back of a, of a chair, dumping the book, book bag, running out and, and turning on the oven. What if you just walked in, said, said hello to one another, sat down in the living room, took a couple minutes of silence and said, ah, oh, home where the family is. And we're going to have a nice supper. The kids are going to tell us about their baseball game. What a great That's Sotio. And God is among us here in this family. And God's listening to everything we're saying. And we're hearing God in one another. Ah, oh, that's Stasio. That's consciousness and concentration. And it can change an entire society from the frenetic to the present. I am present to you, Lawrence, not to anybody else in my life right now. And I took that five minutes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Chapter five, you go over the rule of Benedict on seeking God. And two things really stood out to me in this chapter. The first was the emphasis on stability, the stability that is brought about through following the rule. And the second thing was when you said, uh, you spoke about normalcy as the will of God and said the important thing to Benedictine monastics is to remember that in your own search, ordinariness, not spiritual specialness, become the route to God. So this simple and mature spirituality is, it seems desperately needed in today's self-centered and flashy world. Just wondering if you can tell us a bit more about the rule of Benedict and how we can apply it, its principles in our lives. Oh, yes. But I, in order to tell you about the rule, I want to tell you where it started. Remember that it starts in the sixth century. Now, when you start with something like that, you're sure to turn 80% of the listeners off. Oh, no. More ancient stuff. No, actually, quite, quite present stuff. This young man, Benedict, had been sent to Rome um, for school, for education. Like we send every kid in every family today out to Chicago, down to Pitt, over to Penn State, out to Harvard, where, wherever, wherever the best system seems to be. So... The young Benedict gets to Rome, I'm sure excited, the beginning of his, of his adulthood and, and all these marvelous people he'd meet. And what he ran straight into is what you can run into in any modern city, the frenetic, the hysterical, the addicted, the drunken, the, the uh, indecent. It was, it, it was a, a society so corrupt. And no matter how glorious the empire seemed, it was breaking down right in front of your eyes. The great glory and valor of the Roman Empire, all those ideals that we read about in the orators, uh, it, they weren't there. This young man quit and left and went, uh, uh, not necessarily back to his own home, but he moved into a cave trying to figure out what he was going to do with his life. He had had all of these dreams, and now suddenly they're over. Uh, but the, the shepherds in the area knew he was there. 
And, and they would stop by all the time, and Benedict began to teach them until eventually the shepherd said, get out of this cave. Get out of this thing you're in. You should be teaching the, all the people around here what you're teaching us. Now, that's a great historical, but it's an even greater spiritual statement. These shepherds saw this wisdom, the goodness, his kindness, his peacefulness, and they shouted him down and said, get out of here. You have something to do for the rest of us. So he leaves, and he's leaving just about the time when Roman legions have, are being disbanded. They can't squeeze any more taxes out of the colonies anymore. They can't support these legions. Now, what does that mean? The whole society is crumbling. Uh, the, the little petty politicians in the area are fighting one another. They're burning out the lands. The migrants are, are on the roads. There's, there's no legion to... There's no legion to uh, protect them. And so what do they do? And Benedict says, well, we'll have to take them in. It's dangerous for them. So Benedictine hospitality starts out of a public need. And then he says, well, what are we going to do with them? They, they, don't, even know, they don't even know how to plant potatoes. Then we'll have to teach them. So Benedict now creates an entirely new agricultural society in the shell of this old empire. Benedictinism becomes what historians in this century say saved Western civilization. What could have been countries and countryside that went back to the most feral of, of, of options or behaviors now the Benedictines organize them, they educate them, they, uh, they take them into their own beds to die in, and they become the justice system of all these small villages that if you travel in Europe, you go to the oldest of European cities and you'll find a Benedictine monastery or its ruins still standing there or even still populated. So out of, out of total empirical collapse, the Benedictine order rose out of, out of this concern for contemplation, for the will of God, for how to be spiritually mature and physically helpful, participating in society. Uh, and out of it, uh, historians say all of Europe, European culture was saved by the Benedictine order. And what do we have as its, as, as its continuance now? Hospitality, doing the same thing, taking people. Every monastery I know has um, a, a guest wing or a hospitality house. Uh, they went into land develop and here, development. Here we are, Benedictine, sitting here facing climate change, saying, no matter what governments do, we have to organize people, all of us, to do it again. Uh, the peasants were educated and moved into another society, and the Benedictines provided order and social welfare, things like health care, things like education, 
things like training, things like reading. So that as a result, public service, hospitality, and, and uh, spirituality are the strong pieces of the public image of the Benedictine order. And that's what I wanted to write about. Because, Ross, if something has lasted for 1,500 years in this society where businesses come and go from five to 10 years, uh, somebody has to ask, why? How could that be? What keeps these people going? And the, the, uh, the, the clearest statement of what keeps us going is this. When, when Benedict finally shaped this order, it was perfectly clear what he wanted. He was committed to living the ordinary life extraordinarily well. There, there's no major, um, certainly no neurotic asceticisms that's built into this order, none. There's no attempt to suppress self-development. On the contrary, we want every sister and every brother educated and formed to their height. Why? Because the stronger we are as individuals, the stronger the community is, the more strength we can offer the outer community. It's a very um, socially welcoming order. This notion that Benedictines are cloistered and hiding from people is, uh, is very rare and very new. It's the 19th century. Uh, I always say Benedictines um, opened uh, the absolutely uh, first, um, what, 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 what do we call them? Holiday Inns. Holiday Inns. The first Holiday Inns in the Western world, the Benedictines created. So it, that attitude is still there, that, that we, when that door opens, the hearts open. And we are not, we are not running away from the world. We are living on a, a, a simpler, quieter, uh, less stressful world within the shell of the larger one. Thank you. I was, I was very interested in chapter 26, which is holy leisure on quality of life. And in this chapter, you speak to the true meaning of holy leisure as time for contemplation on our lives. You say, if anything has brought the modern world to the brink of destruction, it must surely be the loss of Sabbath. Why is that statement true? Well, it, it, it comes right out of scripture, doesn't it? Uh, and on the third day, God created the stars and God saw the stars and said that's good and then on the fourth day God created the lakes and God looked at the lakes and said that's good God took time to evaluate God's own work and God pronounced on that work yep that's about what I wanted yeah that's gonna last mm -hmm, that's good so this whole this notion of holy leisure that is built in to anybody's understanding of Sabbath, I mean, uh, who, who does that better than the Jewish tradition? We, we don't do it so well, but we need it. 
It's the time when we should be evaluating what we're doing in life and passing judgment on it ourselves. It's not a play day. This is not when you just take off and, and blow it for the day. It's the day when you look at what's around you and particularly how you are relating to what's around it. And you ask yourself, is that good? Am I doing that well? Could I do that better? Should we be forming something that would help other people do it better? Holy leisure asks in a culture like mine, why? Why is it that people are sleeping under the bridges at night in the middle of February in the north, in the richest country in the world? Why? Holy leisure attends to what's going on and evaluates it takes time to think it through, takes time to study it and see it for what it is, and then reflect that back to the society around it. How can we possibly, how can we allow this to happen? So if you take holy leisure out of, of, of your life, you will be right back to where Ross started this discussion. And that is, What's that Stati other thing about? Uh, what, why, what are you running to now? How many things have you done today? Uh, did you have a Sabbath at all? Did you ever put work down so that the goodness of life around you could carry you or the sense of your own peace and contentment could wash through you? Because if not, it's you who are destroying your own life. Thank you. Sister Joan, humility, it's the only topic that has three chapters dedicated to it in the monastic heart. Humility in the presence of God, humility and the essence of the self, humility and the making of community. And you talk about Benedict's 12-step ladder of humility. I'm going to uh, read a quote here and then I have a question for you. You said, Coming to an understanding of your place in creation, in life, in the human enterprise, determines the quality of your life. Humility, the genuine rock-bottom awareness that you are neither more nor less good, right, knowing, holy, than any other human being around you, becomes the gold standard of spiritual maturity. Humility is the metric by which you may evaluate the credibility of the truly spiritual person. Anything else is pure religious posturing. Can you talk a bit about humility and maybe give us an overview of this 12-step uh, ladder of humility? Okay, let's start on two sentences. First of all, as Ross has already pointed out, there are, <clears throat> excuse me, 12 degrees of humility. 12. I divide them into three parts. The first four, it's all, uh, humility, interestingly enough, is not about humiliation. That, that is a sin against humility, to humiliate anybody. This is a, this is a, a, a concentration on the, the need for relationships if you're going to have a full life yourself. Now, what do I mean by that? The first four degrees of humility talk about 
establishing a relationship with God. And, and, and the very fact that he sets it up like that, the first degree of the, is, is to keep God always before your mind. Secondly, is to do the will of God. Third, to listen to wisdom figures who are trying to, to help you find God. And so I, I look at that and I say to myself, uh, this whole thing is about how you relate. And Benedict is saying, please, do not bore me with all of these devotions on earning God. You know, here's a ladder. Here's, here's a number one. And here's number 12. Now, if you do this right, if you have so many, you give so many uh, donations, you serve so many bowls of soup, you sign so many petitions, uh, you go to so many masses, then, then you will climb up the ladder toward God. Oh, you're, you're in for a surprise. The first degree of humility is you can't earn God. You have God. You never not have God. The, the first degree of, of, of humility is get with it. Understand that. Get it right. Don't spend the rest of your life trying to earn God. God can't be earned. God can't be merited. And God isn't playing a game with you. You have God. God is in you, in the very stuff of your existence, which is the very stuff of creation, of God's creation. So your first concentration is your relationship with God, that consciousness that I'm living in that awareness, that I'm living in that vibration, that I'm living in that, in that uh, uh, presence. And that what am I worried about that. Now we move into the next four degrees of humility, and that is the relationship with the self. Ah, here's where the trouble starts. Do I really know myself? Do I admit to myself that I am myself? Am I the kind that uh, uh, goes to um, uh, a, a work banquet? And uh, I, I expect to be seated at the head table. I mean, I've worked at this company for 18 years, you'd think. So first of all, I want you to pay a lot of attention to me. And secondly, I'll pay a lot of attention to you if you don't. Secondly, I want you to be content. Uh, the, the rule says, with, with the least and the smallest of all, you won't get all the tickets right. You will not get in to the football game today because there's not one seat left, not even for you. This knowledge of who I am is normalcy. I have no expectations. I don't have to, I don't have to own the biggest car. I, how, many, how many boats can you, can you drive at once? How many houses can you live in? How many suits can you wear? If I have what I need, and that means at a personal, social, educational, professional level too, but I don't have to collect and consume and amass and desire and fight for and compete about. 
No, I take a look at me. I understand who I am. And I know, I know that I felt slighted when I wasn't put at the banquet table. There's something wrong with that. I know that I'm missing. I'm, I'm making myself miserable because look at that coat on her. Oh my God, I've never seen anything. So I wonder how much that costs. I wonder how we get it. Honey, the question is, it's, um, it's snowing in Canada. Is your coat warm enough? Are you taking care of yourself? If you have 17 coats, will you feel when, when the Canadian winter sets in and takes aim at Erie as we know you do so well for us and so often? Will you be miserable? Because it's, humility says, know thyself. Know thyself. Be contented with enoughness. Do not, um, do not hide. Take down the masks. We're all about masks now. We know what it means to put a mask on now. We know what it means to take a mask off and how different we look then. And the rule of Benedict says, find yourself a good spiritual director and confess who you are. Quit hiding. Quit, quit when I say to you, are you happy in your job? And you said, well, yes. I was hoping that I would be a little higher by now. What do you mean higher? You, you mean paid more? Well, yes, that too. But, but you know, I, I, I really believe I could run this place. Yeah? Well, I'll tell you what. Why don't you, if you're going to start running it, why don't you just go out there into the public room and say, I think I'm smarter than all the rest of you guys, so I'm applying to, to run this place. Benedict says he missed one of the degrees of humility. Confess it. Sit down. Tell yourself who you are. And then you will know that everybody around you is at least as good as you are. And probably better at lots of things. Now, we have our relationship with God. Kind of figured that one out. We've got to pursue this will of God. We've got to discern this will of God. We have to find good holy figures to help us through that. Then we get to the second set of, of, um, of the degrees of humility, and we quit this putting on airs. We quit trying to elbow the rest of the world out of the way. We quit trying to pretend that uh, my drunken father wasn't really the mayor of San Francisco. I mean, come on. I'm just me. You're just you. You don't have to hide, you know, that, that your Aunt Betty had two kids out of wedlock. What are you hiding them for? Who cares? Who cares? And what does it do to your status anyway? Find somebody who can help you know yourself accept yourself, be yourself, and spend the rest of your energy helping other people, which takes you to the last third of, of these 12 degrees of humility, which, which um, asks you to think how you treat other people. The rule, you'd, you'd swear, it came out of one of those um, uh, comic book, religion books, 
Um, a year ago, it says, don't laugh at other kids. It says, don't, don't humiliate your neighbors. It says, don't take over all, all the talk in the room. It says, just come in and be with everybody else and we'll all be fine. That's why I took three chapters, Charles, because there are three separate relationships that the Benedictine is trained to concentrate on. My relationship with God, my understanding and honesty about myself, and the way I address other people, mocking them, um, moving them out of my sight. They're not my kind of people. Oh my goodness. Are they going to have all those migrants sitting right down front? I paid for a, 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 a first, first row ticket. Who let them in, honey? You need a little talk of humility. You need a little dose. I want to jump from the book to the column that you write for the National Catholic, Catholic Reporter, NCR. And you wrote one um, that came out on November 11th titled, Blessed Are Those Who Mourn Now and Do Something to Make It Better. You speak of uh, the Beatitudes with a focus on the third and say the third Beatitude is, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Or to put it in street language, happy are those who can see what's on the verge of being lost, like democracy or civility or equity or justice or equality or the unity in United, and so do something to save it, or at least make it better. But how? You go on to say more about how. I'm wondering if you can speak to this article, what inspired it, and what's the reason that we need to mourn the present world situation? Yes, I, I can, Ross, and I want to, because I, I really believe that the Beatitudes have still not been discovered. I think they are the bedrock of Jesus' teaching about how to form your personality, how to direct your life. And I, I believe that at least the, the Western interpretation of the attitudes has been wrong for a long time. The, uh, the Aramaic um, rite in the Catholic Church, which is the, the right that was spoken by Jesus himself. Jesus spoke Aramaic. And Bishop Shakur, who is Aramaic, uh, I, I heard him some years ago give a presentation for Beata, uh, on the Beatitudes for uh, our type, Western types. And he made this point. He said, you all, you all say the Beatitudes as if you were saying, blessed are those who, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed, blessed. He said, in Aramaic, the word does not define as blessed. It means happy, happy. If you are happy are those who aren't pushy, who are meek, because they'll, they'll, they'll be able, they'll have friends. They'll, they'll live in peace with people. So today we're with, happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And when I saw that one, now I, I did, 
I, I had no problem with uh, happy are the meek and happy are the poor spirit and happy are the this and happy are the that. But when we got to happy are the more, those who mourn, I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm a social psychologist by training and this does not sound healthy to me. What do we mean by this? Happy are those who see what's going on and do something to make it better. Happy are those who mourn for a lost democracy, for a country that is polarized, for people who have no housing, for uh, uh, immigrants who do not feel welcome. Happy are those who mourn for they must, for they will be comforted if they do something about it themselves. We're responsible, we're in charge of our own happiness. Most of us sit around waiting for it to be delivered by UPS, but the fact of the matter is UPS never comes. We will have the happiness we create for others. We will, happy are those who see the trouble and set out to fix. It's a beautiful beatitude. It says, this, you know, climate change is in our hands. You and I are frustrated because we can't see the national leadership that is shaping us to be able to do something. But that doesn't mean that a lot isn't occurring in the United States, in the, in the neighborhoods, in the institutions, in the schools, in the religious communities. Do we have government leadership? No. Anything that costs money, uh, Americans won't buy, won't pay for. So what, what is happening now is that average people are, are, are beginning to look further and further into this. Why? Because they know their children will not be happy in what we're leaving them. And the children are already not happy with who we are. So the, these Beatitudes form us as people, form us as nation, form us as, as a, a religious community, form us. And, and Jesus teaches the attitudes toward life that will make us happy. And it seems to me that if we were spending a great deal more time on the Beatitudes, then, uh, then we're spending on um, our worry about uh, the budget. Uh, we could clear this up relatively easily and very fast. Thank you. We're going to get on to our audience questions and we've got some really nice ones here. The first one is from Louise who says, Sister Joan, would St. Benedict's monastic community model work for families, men and women together? Thank you. Oh, what a wonderful question. And, and the, the answer is a resounding yes. And that's one of the reasons that I wrote this book, Louise, so that you, you could read a chapter on, on incense, on bells, on, on um, the antiphons of, of the Psalms. And it explains what that means, what it is, and how it fits in prayer at the family at night. 
uh, at the at the wedding ceremonies, uh, when when everybody comes for Sunday dinner, it says all of these little pieces of the monastic life have a meaning, and they have it has a meaning that is meant to shape our hearts, our souls, our work, our minds, our relationships in way that bring happiness to ourselves as well as to others. This is perfect for a family. Uh, when, 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 you're, uh, when you're trying to help the kids understand uh, that God is always present, the chapter one is on bells. There's a bell in every monastic monastery. And well, what are the bells for? Are they because we can't tell time? No, when those bells ring, we stop what we're, what we're doing and we remember that what we're doing is seeking God, trying to do it the best way we know how. We're trying to recall ourselves to why we're really doing what we're doing. So if you're a tax collector and you carry a little or you, you have your watch uh, set uh, to ring at uh, 11 o'clock at the end of the morning and that clock that thing rings and you say, I, I'm trying, I want to do this. I want to collect these taxes with great gentleness. And I want to help these people as much as I can when I'm helping them find their taxes, because I know that God is here for them. And God is also here for me. It's a wonderful way to go through life, to be aware at every step. When you light incense, uh, why are you lighting incense? To remember God is everywhere. God is in the ether. God is in the midst. God is in us. And incense is what tells us. Remember, all of this, all of this ether, in all of its ways, is here to remind us that this isn't the only life. There's something beyond. Yes, Louise, you can take that book and you can find the four or five chapters or the three or four things that can become the, the very backbone of, of your family life without being heavy or persistent or numbing or boring or ridiculous. Just little reminders about who you are, where you are, and how you're there. When you say to the kids, now sit down, take a deep breath. Thank God for the good afternoon you had for the basketball game and the way it went. Now we're going to go out and we're going to we're going to say prayer at table and then we'll have a happy meal together and God will be happy that we're happy. There's nothing that can be more family than those things. They've been, they've been good for our family for 1,500 years. I think they'll work for yours. Thank you. There's a question from Lily, a little more serious. Um, she asks, I'm having difficulty dealing with the latest news in Canada with the findings of indigenous graves of children who died from malnutrition in residential schools run primarily by Catholic priests and nuns. I have been confronted by many friends who have asked me how I can continue being a Catholic and going to mass. This is something, this is coming at a time when I was finally happy to attend Mass again in church after the COVID cases dropped. 
I am struggling finding peace in my mind and soul. You bet you are, Lily. We're all struggling. And you put your finger on it, you see. We're the only people who can make it better. I, I tell people everywhere now, find a good community. Relate to that community or make yourself, bring, bring your, your sister-in-law and brother and their family in. Bring the, the, the girl you work with in the office. Uh, invite people to come for uh, Sunday afternoon and uh, we'll, we'll read the gospel together and we'll say the psalm and we'll talk about what we learned there. And then everybody will bring a plate and we'll all have a family dinner together and we'll thank God that God is with us. You and I can't do anything about that past except keep watch that it never happens any, any place near us ever, ever. And yes, the church is suffering and should suffer from it. Yes, yes. They knew plenty and long years ago and did nothing because they were more concerned about saving the institution than saving the people. The church is in sin. There is no question about that and has plenty to do that must be repented. But at the same time, while the, while the institution is, is grappling with its own history, you and I must, must form these Christian groups. And I say Christian, uh, I don't really mean just Christian. There are an awful lot of, of mixed groups where we're learning from the depth of, of the indigenous, of the Islamic, of, of the Buddhist traditions. And God is with us in those things. The answer to your question, Lily, is you must find your way to God. And you must find what enables you to do that. When I get into public audiences and there are cries of anger and anguish from women who are sick and tired of the rejection of centuries and the, the treatment as non-human and the uh, rejection of their own baptism uh, and, and being told that somehow or other uh, when, when somebody says a prayer over a priest, he's an ontological difference than you are. I mean, there is so much that needs cleaned up and, and with an honest approach. There, there will be no substitute for that. But when, when, when I talk to, to women and men about this, this personal internal struggle to, to be holy, to stay holy, to honor the Jesus story, to maintain the tradition, to rebuild the church by starting in my own little house church, when I begin to talk about that, then I remember who Jesus really was. Uh, went to a, a synagogue once, and they were going to, or a temple once, they were going to throw him out. Anyway, I mean, he had his own problem with the official institution. But at the same time, it is in him that we saw the glory of God and the love of human beings. 
try to find, uh, I, uh, uh, I always say uh, to women, a woman's community and call them up and ask them what programs they have for lay people. And uh, for instance, we're Benedictines. There are about a hundred of us or 85 of us in the community. And uh, we have uh, two, over 250 oblates, people who are committed to this tradition, who work, walk side by side with the professed members of the religious community. This is a, this is a call to us to stop being the children of the church and begin to be the leaders of the church. That's who Jesus was picking. Come follow me. Now is your now is your time. Now is your answer. Don't just give up. Don't just give up. Be there for the indigenous. Be there now. Put a group together and, and ask how you can relate to this. But by all means, take it as God's call to you and me to be better ourselves, more alert ourselves. I, I can remember going through this this um, sex scandal in the United States. And the one thing that I could not get through my head was how was it that we never knew? How was it? We were working side by side. And when the names came out a couple years later, they were people we knew. And I, I crossed the country asking nuns, did, how did you know? And not one nun. It was embarrassing. None of us knew. We just took it all for granted, which means we were not close enough to those kids to, to, that, to have those kids tell us something bad was happening. So, Lily, your question is such an important one. And there is no way to, to simply ignore it. And I am not under any circumstances going to try to talk you out of it. You know what you saw. You know what happened. Now, make something better happen. Don't give up your own faith. Don't give up the Jesus story. Don't give up the scriptures. That's your foundation. Cling to it. Hold it. And trust, trust that the very question that you ask is God's call to you because you are conscious of it and you are you are mourning this problem. And I thank you for mourning it because that's the only way we can fix it. Bad in, maybe. Thank you for that. I think we have time for one more question. And this is from Teresa who says, it's in regards to the 12 uh, steps uh, to, to humility and she says you shared that the first part of the ladder is to recognize you have God what is your advice on what a person can do if they do not feel that connection or that presence oh Teresa I know we got we got done blocked we I, I don't know how old you are but I bet any money that you're uh, at least 40 or above. And, and you, all you've known all your life is some teaching about how bad you are. 
That's what we got up. That, that's uh, all the sin was in us. All the goodness was in the institution. We were the ones who were lagging. I'm, we're not sinless. Don't misunderstand. But the fact of the matter is that you were made by God of the stuff of God. The creation, uh, the creative God cre is creating you from the elements of the universe. You can't be bad. This is good stuff. This, this right here, this is God's creation coming awake, getting enlightened, growing up. Catholics have to grow up to take their prayer life, their, their Lenten life, their public life, their social life in hand. And stop this counting junk. Just stop it. Just know that you're made of good stuff that you must use to the best of your ability for the best of the people you're working with. And understand that God made you and knows you. God made you and knows you. And God made you out of the stuff that is God. Just lift up your heart, put your shoulders back and your head up, and you go out there and do what Jesus calls you and all of us to do. And read, read the evangelist again and watch him. Watch him and see how he dealt with people and watch what he did when he saw pain and suffering. That's your call. And don't this... I am, um, that's an excuse. That, that's nothing but a rotten excuse. I'm nothing but a sinner. I know it. Don't worry, honey. We got the word. Now do something with it. Do something. You'll be all right. Sister Joan Chittister, it's been such an honor to have you. I wish we could talk for a couple more hours. Um, as I'm sure our audience says, thank you to everybody for submitting their questions. We've been speaking with Sister Joan Chittister about her latest book, The Monastic Heart, 50 Simple Practices for a Contemplative and Fulfilling Life. You can get it at banyan.com, B-A-N-Y-E-N.com. Sister Joan's website is joanchittister.org. Sister Joan, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Well, Ross, thanks for making that time. God bless Thanks for joining us for Branches of Wisdom, a podcast of Banyan Books and Sound, Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970. Our podcast producer is Jacob Steele. The show is edited by Abdo Habani. And I'm your host, Ross McKeechee. Watch all our conversations on YouTube by searching for Banyan Books or listen on your favorite podcast platform. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews and comments. We love to hear from you. For all our live events, books, and more, visit us at banyan.com.